At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of interviewing author Mitch Horowitz about his new book, The Miracle Club. Horowitz is the host of New Thought Channel series, Masterclass and One Simple Idea. He's a Penn award-winning historian and the author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, Mind as Builder, the Positive Mind Metaphysics of Edgar Cayce. Mitch has written on everything from The Secret Life of Ronald Reagan to The War on Witches for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Salon, Politico, and Times.com. He has discussed alternative spirituality on CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline, NBC, CNN, and throughout the national media. The Miracle Club is a guide to creating miracles in your own life through the power of thought. It offers a concise, clear formula of focused exercises and concrete tools to lay out a specific path to manifest your deepest desires, and it presents the first serious reconsideration of New Thought philosophy since the death of William James in 1910. Following in the footsteps of little-known group of esoteric seekers from the late 19th century who called themselves the Miracle Club, Mitch Horowitz shows that the spiritual wish fulfillment practices known as the law of attraction, positive thinking, the secret, and the science of getting rich actually works. Weaving these ideas together into a concise, clear formula with real life examples of success, Mitch reveals how your thoughts can impact reality and make things happen. Pleasure that I welcome Mitch to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. How are you, sir? Thanks, man. Very good to be here. I am excited to go over your, your, your book and also the new thought movement and just in terms of your background with it. I, um, I think it's great. One of the first things I wanted to ask you is what motivated you to write your most recent book, The Miracle Club? Well, you know, I, I was writing about these topics for many years as a historian, but I always classified myself as a believing historian. Uh, I take very seriously some of the occult and esoteric subject matter that I write about, some of these ideas are things to which I have my own intimate ties. And this, by the way, is true of a great many religious historians. They don't necessarily advertise themselves as believing historians, but many of our religious histories uh, of mainstream movements as well as new religious movements are written by people who are part of those movements. That's true of Mormonism. That's true of 
Seventh-day Adventism. That's true of ancient movements like Catholicism and Judaism. Frequently these things are documented by people who come from within the congregational ranks that these movements produce. And the same is true of me with regard to esoterica, occult movements, alternative spirituality. And I have a particular affinity, personal affinity for new thought. Uh, New thought is the principle that your thoughts are causative. It's known popularly by names like the power of positive thinking or the law of attraction. It's associated with the secret and so on. And I take very seriously the contention that thoughts have an extra physical basis. I don't think that our thoughts are just a matter of cognition and motor function. And I thought it was time, and it just felt to me like something very desirable and exciting to write a book that was practical, where I really kind of put out there some of my own experiments with these ideas, proposed ways that people can test these things in their own life. And so it was, it was a big step for me uh, to write from a position of practical techniques and methods and exercises. But it also felt very natural because it's a reflection of things that I do in my own life. I did see that in your book you mentioned, and you referenced early in the book, that if you wanted to have a fuller analysis of positive mind philosophy, that you could go to your earlier book, One Simple Idea. And I want yeah. to just, since our audience may not be familiar with that book, I wanted to see if you could just kind of talk about that in, in reference to this newer work and how they correlate to each other. Sure. Uh, One Simple Idea is my history of the positive mind movement. That came out about three and a half years ago. And that is kind of an epic history of where this idea arose from, that your thoughts can make things happen. It has ancient antecedents, but in many regards, it's a very modern idea. Uh, It's really, in terms of the way that we know it today, maybe about 150 years old. And so I wanted to trace the the family tree and the lineage of that notion uh, in modern times that your thoughts affect reality. And I also wanted to look at the lives of different people who lived by that philosophy, including people like President Ronald Reagan, for example, who had a very deep affinity for that outlook, and lots of other historical figures of, of greater and lesser note. So one simple idea, while it does have practical aspects, is kind of a sweeping history of where the whole positive thinking thesis came from and all the different ways that it has affected our outlook on life, uh, medically, culturally, politically, economically. It's actually a very powerful contention and point of view. It's at the heart of the self-help movement in many respects. And I was very satisfied with that book. Uh, Up until that time, it was probably my favorite of all the books that I had written. But I wanted to get more into the guts of things in terms of actual hands-on practice. And and that's what led me very naturally to the Miracle Club as my follow-up. Interesting. And I know that the Miracle Club itself references uh, 19th century, late 1800s, with a group of philosophers that worked together in New York City to come together and develop the idea of what New Age thought would be um, in terms of that. It makes me uh, interested to think of that specifically. Just actually dropped a call. Uh, we, I will, I, I, you know, when Mitch calls back, I just want to go into a side note here. Oh, here we go. He's back. From the beyond. Yeah. Sorry Mitch, about I think that. You dropped, I'm, I'm, I think you dropped. No, no, no worries. No worries. I know you're yeah, yeah. right now. You're I'm up in back Manhattan, from right? the great beyond. Yeah. 
but you, you were asking me. You were you were referencing the fact that the Miracle Club has a authentic historical uh, residence and connection, and that's absolutely right. The Miracle Club was a group of occult explorers here in New York City, where I live, uh, who were who formed uh, together in 1875, and their dedication was to pursue studies of mediumship, channeling, various forms of of mind power, questions of life after death. And they only stayed together a very short time, but that same group later reformed itself in that same year into a much larger and more influential organization, which is still with us today, and that is the Theosophical Society, headed by Madame H.P. Blavatsky and Colonel Henry Steele Olcott. And they were founded again in New York City, same year, 1875. And that organization really instigated a revolution in Eastern and alternative spirituality throughout the Western world and eventually across the globe. And its, its impact has been profound. But the, the, the nucleus and the little kernel that began the Theosophical Society was this loose and more informal group called the Miracle Club. And they were formed actually just a few blocks away from where I live near Midtown Manhattan today. And so I wanted to revive the spirit of that original group, its informality, its experimentation, its passionate zeal. And so I chose the name The Miracle Club, uh, not only with uh, a sense of tribute to that organization, but with a wish that anybody who wanted to experiment, anybody who wanted to try out the techniques in this book, in a sense, informally speaking, becomes a member of The Miracle Club. There's nothing to join. There's nobody to pay. There's no secret decoder ring or code of, con- code of conduct other than, a, other than a wish to experiment. So if you want to do it, you're, I in, that, you're in it automatically. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I see no it having an open mind. Having an mm-hmm. open mind, and my favorite thing is talking about paradigm shifts. When you look at the world, not from just one set of lenses, and being able to keep an open mind and look at it from the perspective that you can be flexible and look at the larger system and the whole and, and the interrelatedness of everything. Yes, um, yes. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, go ahead, sorry. No, I mean, everybody thinks they have an open mind, of course. You know, nobody will ever step up to you and say, you know, my name is Mike and I have a closed mind. (laughs) But having an open mind actually means doing things. You know, having an open mind should be actionable. It should mean that you're you're actively trying new things. You're actively seeking out and, and testing and, and weighing new ideas. You know, that's really where the rubber meets the road because we all think we have an open mind, but if we did, then the world would probably be a much happier place. But for some reason, our neighbors never seem to think we have an open mind. You know, it's always an opinion that we hold about <laughs> ourselves. Uh, but the key thing is, is to have an open mind means that you have to be experimenting with new things of whatever variety. And, that, and, that, and I like the word you use, experiment, because that could be something that you try. It may not be exactly your cup of tea, or it might be something you try and may not succeed at right away. Um, That's right. I think one of the things I, I, I noted when you talked about Louis Lappin, the literary journalist yes. that went to the yes. ashram in India, and you asked him yeah. about transcendental meditation, <laughs> and I think he told you yeah. along the lines of, I didn't really achieve transcendental meditation. The Maharashi gave me a mantra, but That's I didn't make it. <laughs> That's right. I, I, and, I have to laugh about it. Yeah, yeah. You, you're re- referencing a, a, a story that I tell in the first chapter of the book. And, and Lewis, who is still alive today and is a very 
gentlemanly and, and decent man, um, you know, he'd be the first person to step up and say, yes, I have an open mind. Yes, I'm liberal in my thought. And yet Lewis in 1968, you know, traveled halfway around the world to follow the Beatles on their sojourn to the Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh, India. The Beatles at that time were all into transcendental meditation and the surviving Beatles, Paul and Ringo, were still into transcendental meditation. And Lewis travels that far distance, writes this rather scathing, sarcastic two-part article about the Maharishi, depicting him as this kind of scurrilous pseudo-holy man chasing after Western money and celebrity. And yet, even though the Maharishi gave him his own mantra, he never once sat his rear end on a cushion and just tried it out. And it's astounding to me. And when I asked, you know, when I asked him, you know, he responded somewhat sarcastically to the question. And that didn't surprise me. In fact, I would have been surprised by the opposite. And, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's a, a, a plague of our modern intellectual life. It's not necessarily new, but it's this idea that we hold a high opinion of ourselves as seekers, searchers, experimenters, broad-minded folk, but it doesn't actually translate into action. So my hope is that what's in this book for its readers it translates into action, and I hope satisfying action. That's great. I know um, one of the things you discuss is that this movement itself, the New Thought Movement, well, you, you reference, and I believe you say that it died in 1910 with William James. And I wanted well, to no, see no, if I, you could tie I, that in. Yeah, I wouldn't say it died with, with William James in 1910, but James was a hero of mine, and he was a great American philosopher on so many counts. And shortly before his death in 1910, for several years actually, he experimented with new thought and mind metaphysics methods. And the movement certainly continued and produced a lot of popular literature and some very good literature, but what it lost was James's sense of intensive, mature scrutiny. And what happened was the movement itself became capable of reaching large masses of people through very popular books like The Power of Positive Thinking and Think and Grow Rich, which are, by my reckoning, also very good books. I love the popular literature of New Thought, but for all its capacity to communicate its ideas, the movement itself did not grow, did not mature, did not refine itself in terms of its language, its inquiry. So today, you have a new thought movement that's very often steeped in childish language or is populated with folk who are not really connected to the events of the world, not particularly knowledgeable about, or I'm generalizing, of course, uh, or, sure. or, or greatly invested in um, politics, social issues, science, medical issues. I think New Thought is responsible for so many good things, and yet there's only a handful of colleagues that I have within the movement with whom I can really have a serious discussion about the placebo response, about neuroplasticity, about um, psychical research, about quantum theory. And these are all things that actually affirm some of New Thought's earliest instincts that, that the mind has some extra physical life and influence, a contention that I firmly, firmly believe. But I don't think New Thought has kept up with the times in the sense. It was such a vibrant, wonderful movement in the late 19th, early 20th century. And today, there's a lot of sloganeering. 
there's a lot of kind of refrigerator magnet style expressions. There's a tone of childishness. And I think the movement has done a good job of communicating its aims, but has not done a good job of maturing and, and embracing a more uh, mature language and reckoning with its own serious contradictions, such as I think its inability to deal with tragedy and catastrophe. I don't think the movement has ever come to terms with that, for example. Yeah, the inability of developing a theory for suffering, basically. Is that what you're referencing? Yes. Huge, okay. huge issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the big criticisms what? of the Rev- Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the, the great book, The Power of Positive Thinking, in the 1950s, is that Peale never developed a theology of suffering. And I think that's true. And I admire Peale. I greatly admire Peale, and there's many good things I could say about him. Uh, and I write about him pretty extensively in the book One Simple Idea. But his critics, his thoughtful critics, because he had a lot of critics who were not thoughtful and who just dismissed his whole project out of hand, and they were wrong, they went too far. But his thoughtful critics, you know, one in particular said, you know, Peel is right about so much, but he has failed to develop a theology of suffering. He has failed to find a language to talk to people who have faced catastrophe. And I think that's true. I think that was true. And that's another of the things that I try to accomplish in the Miracle Club. Tell me in terms of the New Thought Movement and your personal involvement with it, how did you become involved in this in this idea? I don't want to call it an ideology. I call it a way of organizing your thoughts and, and living your life. Would that be a better way yeah. of phrasing it? Oh, oh, sure, okay. you know, but I don't mind ideology, theology, you know. I, encountered, I first encountered some of this literature about 20 years ago. I was hired by a metaphysical publisher uh, called Tartarus Putnam, which later became Tartar Penguin, and I began to read deeply into the backlist, and I was kind of blown away with what I found because it reminded me of some of the material that I had encountered and pursued when I was a kid dealing with a, a difficult household environment and I was reading things that dealt with the question of whether your mind could change your circumstances. And, and to re-encounter that thread, to pick up that thread again as an adult around the age of 30 was just really satisfying and remarkable. And I guess I, I, I not only felt magnetically pulled into that material, but I was sometime thereafter I began writing my first book, which was called Occult America, and Occult America is is a history of supernatural religious movements in America. And one of the things that struck me as I was working on Occult America, and probably this this led to the book One Simple Idea, was that most ideas of magic and, and the supernatural in the modern world ultimately, ultimately come down to this contention that your thoughts can make things happen. And so whether you're into ceremonial magic or whether you're into uh, various forms of mystical Christianity or whether you are just into a kind of straightforward, all-American motivational thinking, everybody who is pursuing some kind of spiritual path or program that goes outside of the traditional congregations usually comes to the conclusion that the power of thought is an actual force, actually concretizes 
events in outer life. Some people might call it will rather than force. Some people use affirmations or meditations. Other people will use uh, ritual, ceremony, spell work. But anyone that you encounter uh, who is doing something outside of the very traditional congregational religious practices that we're familiar with is almost always engaging with new thought on some level or another. So if you're into Aleister Crowley, you know, you're using ritual, ceremonial magic, spell work to enact your will. If you're into chaos magic, you're using sigils, signs, and all kinds of wonderful experiments and symbolism and kind of do-it-yourself anarchic methods and techniques to do what? To basically concretize and actualize your thoughts. So all of us, in one way or another, if we're involved with any aspect of the alternative spiritual scene, and this actually extends into the mainstream through things like the prosperity gospel, the ministry of people like Joel Osteen and so on, you know, this is a thread that, that runs throughout American religious life, just a little bit off the mainstream, but very, very popular. And it seems to me that every religious expression that went beyond the traditional really came down to the new thought thesis, which is that thoughts are causative. And I came to feel like that's, that's really the animating spiritual idea of modern life. You know, it used to be that our forebearers were interested in sin and salvation. And maybe we haven't given up on that entirely, but some of us have. But the, the, the concept of salvation is now supplemented by this idea that religion can be a practical self-help and that the mind is a channel for cosmic laws or higher forces. That's the dominant idea of modern religious life in the West. So I felt like I was connecting with material that not only spoke to me from a mystical and, and occult perspective, but I felt like this is material that's kind of in the groundwater of modern life. We just don't realize it's there, even as we're drinking from it. And I never looked back. You know, as soon as I developed this interest, probably going back about 20 years, uh, it never receded. It, it only deepened. As a, in terms of your personal perspective, do you, uh, have you had a lot of experiences with synchronicity? Because that's something I, I have experienced with in life, where the universe lays out certain things that happen and lead you on your spiritual path or on your journey. And I was wondering if something like that's occurred for you with being an offer and with your own particular projects that you've worked on in your life. Right. I've had some experiences with synchronicity for sure, but I would say probably the most enthralling experience that I had is that using these methods, and I write about this in the Miracle Club, led to my own rebirth as a writer. I, I had left writing behind when I was in my early 20s, and I actually didn't publish my first book, The Cult America, until I was in my 40s, and now I'm 52. And so, in a sense, you know, people always ask me, where do you get all this energy from? And I think one of the places it comes from is that I didn't actually embark on my career as a writer, as a speaker, as a narrator, as a host, until I was entering middle age. It was a period of time when most people think, well, gee, I'm kind of settling down. If not circling the drain, I'm at least you know, entering into a kind of holding pattern. But my life took sure. a radical and very welcome change in early middle age. And I attribute that to a great extent to 
some of these methods. I had a very keen aim, a very keen ideal, uh, a mind's eye picture of where I wanted to go. And, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, the circumstances were not in place, but they fell into place. I wouldn't quite call that a synchronicity, but there was a symmetry to it. And the symmetry matched very much what was in my mind's eye, and I feel very grateful for that. So I see myself as, as a recipient of real concrete results from using new thought methods. I wanted to ask you about Neville Goddard. And oh, in yeah, terms of my man. His, how he influenced your personal uh, development in terms yeah. of, you know, just your theories and your ideas, if you could talk a little about him. Yeah, Neville Goddard is my absolute number one influence, and, and his teachings are my, my deepest dedication. Neville, he went by his first name. Neville was a mystic who was born uh, to a British family in Barbados, on the island of Barbados, in 1905. He lived and worked uh, here in the United States until his death in October of 1972. In fact, he died October 1st. We just, we just marked the anniversary of his death. And Neville was the most exciting and elegant and compelling teacher, in my view, to emerge from the mind metaphysics tradition. Neville taught one basic principle, which is that your imagination is God, and that everything that you see, experience, and hear is self-created. It's kind of this ultimate sense of idealism, this kind of extremist self-responsibility. And he could argue for this with such elegant simplicity and persuasion. And his books and lectures are all extraordinary because you can enter any single one of them and it feels fresh and new. And although he repeated this thesis over and over hundreds of times, each time he did it, it was fresh. And he confirmed an instinct that people had, even though the basic idea is astounding and radical. Neville would argue that Every time God is represented in the New or Old Testament, what you're really seeing is a metaphor for your own imagination and your own creative development. And that all of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, is a blueprint for humanity's own inner development and realization of its divine creative power. So Neville would say, for example, that as your listeners are hearing my voice, he would say, you know, there's really no Mitch there. What you're hearing, I address myself to anyone listening, what you're hearing is self-created. You know, this message is coming to you only because the time is propitious for this message to come to you. And that I, Mitch, the speaker, am rooted in you. I'm an extension of you as you are ultimately rooted in God. He would say that everything that we experience is, is self-created in the most literal sense. And as extreme and as far out as the contention sounds, Neville would offer people very simple methods, ways of testing this, usually having to do with mental visualization. And he would challenge audiences, test me, prove me wrong. If it doesn't, if it doesn't work, forget you ever heard my name. Forget all about me. And he, he had a, a very dedicated following throughout his life, and he's growing in popularity today. Uh, his books are being far more widely read today than they were during his own lifetime. And I, I dedicate a, a, a whole chapter to him in the Miracle Club. The chapter is called Mirror Man. And 
I, I find him just the most compelling persona to have ever emerged from the mind power tradition. He was elegant, he was likable, he was appealing, he was articulate, and he was completely radical without being off-putting. And I encourage anybody interested in this material to put the name Neville Goddard into Google, see what you come up with. Excellent. I um, One of the things I was looking at, you mentioned it earlier, about other applications such as the law of attraction. And um, I want to ask you about your critique of the law of attraction, um, yeah. the secret positive thinking. Uh, I believe in, in your book you say something along the lines that it's right but not right enough. And I just want to see if yeah. you can kind of explain that further for our audience. Sure. You know, I don't often use the term law of attraction. And, in fact, I very rarely use it. I don't reject it. But I get turned off by the way it gets used because the implication is that we live under one mental super law and that everything that happens to us results from this law of mentation. And the truth is, while awareness or consciousness may be some ultimate and final arbiter of reality, as Neville contends, the framework that we live in, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, are shot through with multiple laws and forces. And I believe that we, while the mind and while the law of mentation, if I could put it that way, is one vital and unseen aspect of our lives, there are many different aspects of our lives. We're affected by geography, by birth, by accident. You know, I've never liked the New Age nostrum that there are no accidents. I think we live under a law of accidents in as much as we Absolutely. also live under synchronicities. And I think that, you know, when people suffer from a, a hurricane or an earthquake in, 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 in other nations or in our own, Puerto Rico, um, have geothermal, seismic reasons. There are meta patterns of weather and so on. These are not the result of laws of mentality, in my view. Uh, a law of mentality may be constant, and it may even be ultimate, but for example, you could say the same thing of the law of gravity, but you're going to experience gravity very differently on Earth than you are on Jupiter, for example, or very differently in outer space where there's a vacuum and there's no gravity at all because there's no mass for it to act upon. So gravity is certainly real. It's certainly universal. It's certainly ever operative, but you're going to experience it differently situationally. And I think the same is true of the law of mentation. You are going to have vastly different experiences under different circumstances, even if it is an ultimate truth. Our lives are shut through with many laws and forces, of which the mind is one. And that's fascinating enough. That's, that's room enough to begin experimenting with. But I don't respond to the idea, and I don't think there's any way that you can demonstrate the idea that everything under the sun, so to speak, is the result of mentation. Because that doesn't explain the vast differences in, in poverty and and health and radically different circumstances such as war versus peace that people are forced to live under that are not at all of their own making. Uh, I don't think the law of attraction is, is sufficient, even if it explains these things on a, uh, on a global scale. I, I don't think that 
the thought patterns of populations or nations are responsible for their their good or bad fortune. I think there's many, many things going on, of which mentation is one. So for that reason, I stay away from the law of attraction. I acknowledge the term because it's so popular, but it's not my term. Sure, sure. In terms of other influences, I know uh, you, you cite to Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson a couple times in your book and about basically bringing uh, a, a theoretical construct to the people. Is that, a, is that a good way of saying it? Um, being oh, yeah, able to yeah. take, take – I'm trying to think the right way to phrase it best, but um, I, think, I think one of the ways you phrased it was taking the information and having it available to everyday people, the working people, the working masses. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and Emerson was a master at that. You know, I, I mean, Emerson would give a speech or a lecture somewhere, and he would very quickly turn that speech or lecture into – a pamphlet that could be published popularly. And he was very dedicated to the idea that his transcendentalist outlook should reach as, as broad an audience as possible. And many of these ideas, many of these ideas had their inception in the broadest strokes in, in Emerson. Uh, Emerson was a, a great enunciator, a great champion of the idea that the human mind is a channel for what people call God, is a channel for higher forces and cosmic laws. He was influenced in that regard by people including Emanuel Swedenborg, the great Swedish mythic and scientist. But Neville managed to enunciate this in a way that, that has lasted, whereas very few people uh, can find their way through the works of Swedenborg today. But, but uh, Emerson wanted to, wanted to take cosmic and mystical ideas specifically of the mind being a channel of some higher power and make them accessible to the masses of people. And he, he, he succeeded so masterfully that you, you'll find lots of people today, myself included, who reread some of his essays every year, like self-reliance and compensation. Uh, no, uh, Emerson was really the great master who, who kind of created the whole atmosphere from which New Thought was able to grow. Okay. Very interesting. Chapter three of your book, I, I think it's, it's Ye Are God. I yes. uh, wanted to ask you in terms of spontaneous remissions of cancer, because mm-hmm. uh, that's something that really stuck out when I was looking through this chapter. And I want to see if you can explain mm-hmm. that a little further to our audience. Sure. You know, this whole movement that we're talking about originally grew as a, as a, medical movement. Um, the, the, the earliest expression of New Thought philosophy really was what, what is sometimes called the New England Mental Healing Movement. That's the movement that grew up in the wake of Ralph Waldo Emerson's thoughts. Uh, medicine in the 19th century in America was abysmally poor. Uh, there were many different reasons for that, which I analyzed in one simple idea, but medicine was probably the one area of the sciences where the United States lagged behind Europe. And people who lived across the country, particularly in rural areas, but urban as well, 
had very, very, very little access to decent medicine, uh, what there was of it in the 19th century. And so this movement first began as a medical movement, as a healing movement, and it later morphed beyond that. And it remains so today. And this is a huge point of contention for people because there are some people who will swear that their state of mind, their attitude of mind contributed to recovery. And then there are other people who feel quite fairly that that amounts basically to victim blaming because there's so many people who are desirous of recovery and who exist and function in atmospheres of sensitivity and understanding and encouragement, and they die of terminal diseases. They do not recover. And there are some people who feel that the mind metaphysics movement is a great big sham because there are so many exceptions to the claim that your mind can improve your health. And I, I, I take these issues very, very seriously. And one has to approach medicine, mortality, illness, injury with deep and great seriousness because of what I was saying earlier, which is that we live under many laws and forces. And it's impossible to make a reasonable case that mentation is behind illness. I reject that unequivocally. I reject it unequivocally. At the same time, that's not to say that the mind cannot play an authentic and concrete role in the possibility of recovery, a role that goes beyond morale or mood or inspiration. I mean, the, 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 the studies into the placebo response have, in our own generation, extended to things like placebo surgeries, have extended to people actually losing weight or changing the nature of the neural pathways in their brain through thought. These are facts that I go through in the book. These are observed, documented test results that were conducted under clinical conditions. So we're standing at this precipice where there's no defending illness and recovery as a result alone of the mind. I reject that. But there's also no removing the mental equation from illness. And one of the things I write about in this chapter is the fact that each year there are about 15 to 20 documented medical cases that can be found in standard reviewed medical literature of spontaneous remission of cancer. And this has been on the books since the mid-1960s. And it's fairly consistent. There's probably many cases that are not reported. And it places us in front of this massive mystery and question as to why. Now, one of the reasons why, and I, I walk through this with great care in this chapter because this is very sensitive material, and I am most definitely not in the business of giving people uh, any kind of false hopes. I, I simply want us to be sure. able to review the material that's out there, even if the material is um, a small fraction of, 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 of what results from terminally diagnosed cases. These 15 to 20 cases a year, which are fairly consistent and, again, probably underreported, um, are a medical mystery. Now, it could be, uh, as some physicians have theorized, that people who are diagnosed with terminal cancer and who have discontinued treatment and the expectation of dying from their disease, uh, who evince spontaneous recovery, it could be that they were wrongly diagnosed 
It could be that they had a virus that was suppressing their immune system, and when that virus lifted, they experienced this really extraordinary recovery. It could be that, in fact, maybe they had some kind of a virus that had cancer-fighting properties that we don't understand. Uh, there's all kinds of, 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 of what-ifs. But people who survey this literature will also acknowledge that it's possible that there could be a mental aspect to it. And one of the very few uh, medical researchers who really paid special attention uh, to the question of a mental role in spontaneous remission was an Australian psychiatrist and researcher named Ainsley Mears. And I write about Ainsley Mears in this chapter. And Mears, who died in the 1980s, would meet with uh, individual patients and, and, and study groups of people who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, who had discontinued all traditional medical treatment, and who would subject them to intensive meditation, intensive rounds of meditation that would amount to at least three hours a day. And Mears found in his clinical studies that in about 10% of the cases he personally dealt with, there was some kind of uh, significant remission. And in some cases, in some cases, very few, there was a complete and total remission. And this was about 10% of the cases where people experienced either some significant remission or in some cases complete and total remission. And the reason why Mears is an important figure to me is that his work was published in standard medical journals, like the British journal Lancet, for example. Part of the problem is you have physicians out there, you have medical professionals out there who talk about spontaneous remission, but their work is not documented in the traditional journals. And I think their work should be taken very seriously but Mears was exceptional because his work was documented and published in juried, peer-reviewed journals, which is not a recipe for flawlessness by any means, but it is significant. And it's such delicate subject matter, and I'm so eager to talk about it with care so as not to give false hope which would be unconscionable, but also not to ignore extraordinary circumstances because the fact that something is extraordinary or the fact that it cannot be repeated doesn't mean it didn't occur. These cases did occur, and they did correlate, in the case of Mears' patients and subjects, with intensive meditation, which does raise the question of the role of meditation in these rare, rare cases of spontaneous remission. It has to be looked at. It has to be looked at because it is real, it is rare, and it is something that we should understand. So we need to have a new gold standard by which to talk about mentation and disease without falling off of one deep end or the other. And, and falling into the ditch, so to speak, of not being able to understand it from the larger perspective or a, a, exactly. a broader approach, I think. And it's, and it's very difficult to discuss this material at all. In fact, you'll probably find 
you may find this yourself, you know, following the show in the form of emails that you get from your listeners. You know, it's, you, yeah. you know there, there's some people who the minute you mention a correlation between cancer and mentality, some people who have new age sympathies go off one end and say, yes, of course, this validates my own most cherished perspectives. Of course it's true. Of course it's true. And then you have people who go off the other end and say, that's so irresponsible. How dare you blaming the victim? It's giving false hope. And they don't hear that it's not, it's none of those things. What it is is a question. We don't need an answer. We don't need a political position. We need a deepened question. And as careful and as delicate as I try to be when discussing this subject matter, I find that almost no matter what, it polarizes. It polarizes. Again, people who have sympathies in these directions tend to seize upon it with this euphoria, and people who are critics of what I'm talking about tend to hear it as this false, um, almost delusive uh, uh, gospel of of, of woo-woo thinking that, that runs counter to medical rigor. And we need to suspend our proclivity to reach positions and deepen a question. There has to be an intelligent way of considering this material that's neither fantastical nor dismissive because it's extraordinary material. It's also very rare material, and it does appear in medical literature, and I do provide the citations in the book for anybody who wants to check it out themselves. And um, we have to treat this as a question, and we have to deepen the question. That's my wish. I like that a lot. Uh, there's a lot of material here I want to still go over, and I know we're limited in time. We have about 15 minutes. I want to ask you, in terms of the Chapter 4 methods and mind power, you talk mm-hmm. about visualizing, praying, meditating, and chanting yeah. um, as, I, I would say, positive mind mechanics. and. Yes. You discuss um, those approaches in, inherently within throughout the chapter. I want to ask you, what's your out of those four um, modalities? I guess there's five. Sorry, um, what, which is which of those do you prefer yourself? I know you talk about transcendental meditation in in, yeah. in your book. Yeah. Would would meditation be probably one of the, your more preferred avenues uh, for yourself, yeah. or do you utilize other ones I- as well? I use all those methods. I, I use meditation. Trans, as you were referencing, transcendental meditation is my own personal commitment. That's a mantra-based form of meditation that's very relaxing. Uh, I use prayer. I, I believe there's a place for prayer in every practice, however you devise it and whatever, your, whatever source of power you're praying to. I use affirmations, visualizations. I'm particularly interested in in mental visualizations because that's the method that was preferred by Neville Goddard, who we were talking about earlier. Neville felt felt that if if you visualize a certain scene in your mind, and that scene implies the fulfillment of something that you want, like let's say you want a promotion at work, and you visualize your boss shaking your hand or something that implies the fulfillment of your, of your desire. And you really are able to bring a texture and a vividness to it. You insert yourself into the visualization. You don't just watch it like it's something happening on the screen, but you, you interject yourself into it. 
and you bring a tactile reality to it. You bring an emotional state to it. And when you're in a very deeply relaxed state, such as maybe a few minutes before you go to bed at night, and you, you, you conduct this scene, you run it over several times in your mind, that was pretty much Neville's primary method. And he believed that you would actually see changes in your life. Now, we, we only have you know, 10, 15 minutes left to talk, and that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Why, why, why would that be? Is it confirmation bias? Is it, you know, just, just the action of your subconscious? Are you hypnotizing yourself? Is it auto-suggestion, or is it something else? And I, I think it, it, it may be many things. It may be some of the things I've just mentioned, but I also think it's, it's something else. I do think that our, our mentation goes beyond motor functions and cognition. We've seen so much in the sciences to suggest as much um, in, in quantum theory. Again, a huge topic, a very polarizing topic in psychical research, in neuroplasticity, in the placebo response, and in the testimony of seeking people over the course of many, many generations. We also have a record of testimony which can't be uh, uh, dismissed or, or erased from consideration. And I think that the contention that our, our, our minds are nothing but the equivalent of bubbles in a glass of carbonated water, and when the water goes away or the water goes flat, the bubbles go away, that's just not sufficient in the 21st century anymore. Not after 80 years of classical quantum experiments where we're experiencing some kind of an observer effect in the particle lab. Not after um, recent experiments in neuroplasticity that demonstrate that thought patterns actually alter neural pathways in the brain. It's literal mind over matter. Uh, not after uh, decades of responsible, serious ESP experiments that, that show lab-based evidence of precognition. There's too many questions about the nature of mentality, about the extra-physical nature of mentality, for us to think of the mind any longer as, again, you know, just being the equivalent of, of, of bubbles in a, in a glass of carbonated water. It's, it's something more than that because... Uh, to deny that would be to deny the evidence that, that we've accumulated as well as the testimony that we have accumulated. And, uh, you know, it's funny. There's one materialist philosopher who likes to describe human beings as nothing more than moist robots. And it's a cute way of putting it, <laughs> but it's, it, it simply doesn't hold up because even if you look at neuroplasticity alone, and, and I cite that because it's the most conservative and the least controversial of all these different things that I'm referring to, Neuroplasticity has demonstrated that sustained, um, consistently held thoughts will actually alter neural pathways in brain matter. Now, nothing like that has ever been demonstrated um, in a man-made, uh, constructed, binary-coded machine. You can certainly program a machine to improve itself, but the idea that the actual hardware of which that machine is consistent will undergo organic change as a result of, of its programming, not, not, not as a result of something that the programming directs the machine to do, but as a result of the programming in and of itself. And this is a very important distinction. We're not talking about programming, programming a machine to pick up a screwdriver and change itself. We're talking about the programming itself 
resulting in an organic change in the hardware of the machine, there's no such case. There's no such case. Interesting. And yet, we have brain scans produced by uh, research psychiatrists like Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA that show that very thing occurring in the individual, that mentation will result in changes in the electrical pathways or the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in the brain. So, you know, scientists who take a materialist point of view are willfully ignoring things that contradict that. And we've reached a point in the 21st century where materialism is defensible as a political position, but it doesn't really hold up in terms of the logic of what's available to us. Materialism doesn't cover all the bases. It's insufficient. So whether we like it or not, our generation is standing before a deepened question, and that question involves taking into account the extra physicality of the mind's abilities, which is why I take a figure like Neville Goddard so seriously. And you started out by asking me which of these methods are my deepest commitments, and I use all of them. But visualization holds a special place for me in my practice because that was at the heart of Neville's practice, and I think Neville is the greatest mystical analog to some of these things in the sciences that we've been talking about. That's excellent. We have about seven minutes left, and I want to make sure I get to your website. I want to see if you could share that with our audience, so if they want to find out sure. more information about you. So yes, if, I know it's, if anybody good. If anybody, if anybody wants more, I'm laughing because there's some people who probably want less, but if anybody would like more, uh, they can find me just by throwing my name, Mitch Horowitz, into Google. And I'm super easy to find. Uh, my website is MitchHorowitz.com. My email is on the website, so if you want to contact me, uh, you will hear back from me. You can, you can send me an email. I write back to almost uh, virtually everybody who writes to me. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz. Uh, I'm going to be speaking in Los Angeles, October 25th through 27th. I live in New York City, but I'm going to be camping out in Los Angeles uh, the week before Halloween, and I'll be speaking there. I have some events happening here in New York, in Chicago, and other parts of the country. Uh, you can stay abreast of all these things on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook. You can visit my website. There's lots of links there to different articles and videos and lectures and audios. Um, you can visit medium.com where I'm a contributor and I have uh, 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 several columns there that you can check out. And, of course, you can read The Miracle Club. The Miracle Club publishes on October 16th, but it's available for pre-order right now over Amazon or Barnes & Noble or through independent booksellers, wherever you buy your books. You can pre-order The Miracle Club in physical book, digital, or audio. And I feel very fortunate to have an advanced copy of that that I've had a chance to look at. And I'm very impressed oh, with good. your background as well as this book. And I just Thank think you. um, you've done a lot for this for this area. And I'm very impressed with what you've accomplished in terms of your own personal uh, achievements. I know, it's, you know you. authors don't normally share their personal details and their story. I like the way in Chapter 2 that you tie – I think it's Chapter 2 where you tied in that you came from humble beginnings and you yeah. use some notorious B.I.G. references in there, which I thought was right. rather entertaining. 
Uh, but uh, I, I was very impressed with the way you were able to integrate that into the into the story of the rest of your book. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate you noting that. Right, yeah, I, I had yeah. to be. I felt I had to be blunt and straightforward with people about my own background because one makes personal claims around this material. You know, the ideas that this material has a practical, concrete effect on your life. So I felt I had to try to be as intimate and blunt with the reader as I could about my own personal experiences. What I liked about that part of the book going through it is that I connected and I relate to you. Cause I'm from Northern New Jersey myself, come from a single oh, okay. parent family. And so, so you get it. Yeah. I understand the, the <laughs> dynamics of what you're describing there, inter- including the notorious EIG references. Um, yes. <laughs> one last, one last question for you. My audience is listening to this right now and they are interested and intrigued by the Miracle Club and by you. What would be your lasting um, recommendation to them before they pick up this book? If they were to, you know, hopefully they will order it and and uh, review it. What would you want them to kind of approach this if they've never read a book like this before? How would you suggest they should approach your book? I would say approach it with a spirit of total experimentation. And if you decide that these methods are something you want to test out, you don't need anybody else's approval to do it. One of the wonderful things that we possess that we don't practice enough is that we have the ability to privately experiment with philosophical ideas in our own lives. And we don't need to tell a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a teacher or a boss or a coworker or anybody else that we're doing it. Uh, You have a right to exquisite privacy. And if you want to pick up a book like this and try out some of these ideas, however far up they may sound and whatever your next-door neighbor may think of it, it's your private business. It's your private experiment. And you should cherish that. And you should feel a sense of adventure. And you should feel a sense of arousal and a sense of excitement that you can sit down and crack open a book like this and experiment with your own mentality and see what happens. You don't need anyone else's approval. You don't need to join anything. You don't need to put a label on yourself. You don't need to post your name anywhere. You just need to have a zeal for experimentation. And I want people to enjoy that. I want them to feel that they have such an exquisitely personal, private right to conduct these ethical and spiritual experiments in their own lives without anybody else's approval. And I, I want people to feel that, that sense of adventure and, and possibility and kind of self-agency when they approach this book. And that's great. I, uh, I have one last, uh, not a silly question, but ending question. I had some sh- shamans on my show in the past, and I was going to ask you, if you were to see yourself as a spiritual animal, what would that be if you had one? Wow, that's a wonderful question. You know, I always tell people, <laughs> I'm, not, I, I, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a mind guru, I'm a seeker. And uh, everything that I'm inviting people to do has to do with just wanting to be in a circle of co-seekers. I mean, that's what the Miracle Club is. There's no precedent. You know, we're all members in equal standing, and, and, and we're members just by virtue of wanting to experiment. So uh, it's a really wonderful question. What, what animal is it that's a seeker? Maybe a, a hawk is a seeker. You know, a hawk is always – I was thinking hawk of, or owl or something along those lines. Yeah. Something that I re- I, travels. I that. <laughs> yeah. Travels, drives the current there, and it's always watching, watching, watching. So I think that's, and that's what I would see. <laughs> yes, not Great. wood, not wood, yeah. And an owl is an animal that has a lot of resonance with me, although I haven't 
physically been around a lot of owls. I see hawks more frequently. But um, the, the idea of that, that kind of watching and traveling and floating on the air currents is, uh, is very compelling. <laughs> That's great. I wish you the best success. I, I really enjoyed thank having you. you on our show this evening. And I, I thank you for sharing, sharing this hour with us and with our audience. I encourage our audience to learn more about you, read this book, look, pick up the Miracle Club, order it. Um, I just want to, if you ever want to come back on our show, I'd love to, to revisit any of your other, I'd be other, your other work. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. It really is. Thank, thank you, you so much. Likewise. Thank you very much. Okay. Good night. Right. Bye. I just want to thank everyone for uh, continuing their support of our show. This week will mark a milestone. Uh, we're approaching 100,000 listens. I want to thank our audience for that and for the continued support that you continue to share with us. I really want to thank Mitch Horowitz for appearing on our show this evening. I'm very impressed with the Miracle Club, how thoughts become reality. I'm excited to learn more about Mitch Horowitz as he goes forward with his path, and I, I just think it was a, a phenomenal work uh, to have this feature today. And it's come, as I said, it's coming out shortly. Uh, it'll be available on Amazon.com. Go to Mitch Horowitz's website as well. And um, I, look, I look forward to continued success for him in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today.
electric acid. Electric acid. 